You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Episode 174 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band The Shivers. The Shivers consist of Sean Garner on vocals and guitar, Justin Smith on lead guitar, Eric Olson on drums, and Mike Ross on bass. Since their debut in 2018, they have established themselves as a powerhouse of rock in the Cincinnati, Ohio music scene, drawing upon influences ranging from desert rock to garage to punk. This past December, the Shivers released their debut full-length album, Dreadfully Distinct. For more information on the Shivers, you can find them on all of the streaming platforms, as well as linktree.com forward slash the Shivers 513. Now here it is, their new single, August. Would you do it if you were me?
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, this is Aaron from the Blast Room documentary. I'm the producer and director of the film, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour. Run for the road, cause it's going on and on. We'll be driving through the darkest night until the break of dawn. We'll be heading for the cities, another show for us to play. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, what is going on? As always, this is Chris Swinney, and I am your host for that one time on tour. This is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar conversation. Uh, We did it. We made it. It's 2022, and Bob Saget died today. Betty White died before New Year's, and now Bob Saget. Norm MacDonald died last year. So many people are dying, and so many people are posting about it on Facebook. It's You can't escape it. People are going to die, man. It's a... Uh, it's a sad reality. I, I love it on Facebook when Betty Betty White died. One of my friends put, um, man, Betty White died like j- too soon or something. I don't know. They said something that alluded to the fact that it was like a surprise. She was 99 years old. I mean, I love Betty White as much as everybody else, but she was almost 100, man. So rest in peace to Betty White and uh, of course, Norm MacDonald back in a couple months back and Bob Saget. I was a big Full House fan. Kind of grew up with Bob Saget. It really sucks. But uh, but yeah, so rest in peace to to those fine people. But uh, I hope you are doing well out there. The holidays are finally over and things are getting back to normal, back to work, back to school, and back to another episode. The first episode of that one time on tour in the year 2022. Today on the program... It's a pretty good one. I got to sit down and chat with Mr. Aaron Pendergast. Aaron is the producer and director of the awesome upcoming documentary on The Blasting Room. If you listen to this podcast, I am pretty sure that you know about the legendary recording studio known as The Blasting Room. It's owned and operated by Bill Stevenson from The Descendants, All, Black Flag, Only Crime, and Jason Livermore. Odds are, if you're into punk rock... They have had a hand in some of your favorite records, either the mastering or the production or the engineering or something. They have they've done so many classics at the Blasting Room, and that is why it is so great that somebody is making a documentary on the studio. I think it'll be a nice companion documentary to go with Filmage, the story of the descendants and all. Um, so, yeah, I think you're really going to dig it. I'm a sucker for any music doc. I mean, I've watched like the Britney Spears stuff and Justin Bieber stuff and Sean Mendez stuff, and I, I liked it just as much as watching, you know, filmage. If it's about music and it's a documentary, I'm I'm all about it. So 
to have a film about one of my favorite recording studios in the world, sign me up. I'm on board right now. So before I get to my chat with Aaron, let's do some housekeeping. Let's keep the lights on. Excuse me. We have some sponsors for today's episode. The Shivers. Awesome band, a little different than what we would normally get, but I really, really like that song, August. You guys can check out The Shivers on all of the streaming platforms, and all of the links for them are over at linktree.com forward slash The Shivers 513. Shout out to The Shivers, my Cincinnati dudes. Love you guys. Thank you for sponsoring today's episode. We also have partscasterconcierge.com. My buddy Gary, he built me a guitar. He needs to build you a guitar. Hit him up over at partscasterconcierge.com. Last but not least, we have Permanence Tattoo Gallery. You can see all of the cool stuff they do over on the socials at Permanence Tattoo Gallery. Still sponsoring after two or three years. The issue is it's hard to get an appointment with Jacob because he's always so booked up. I think if I wanted to get an appointment right now, it would be like eight months from now. But they're still on the ride. They're still sponsoring the podcast If you guys are in East Central Indiana, Anderson, Indiana, hit them up. Permanence Tattoo Gallery. You will not be sorry. All of this information, all of the sponsor links and everything, if you want to check the band out or any of these companies out, they're all in the show notes on the episode page. All you have to do is head over to tototpodcast.com and you can get all of the information from this episode. If you have a band or a company and you would like to sponsor an episode of that one time on tour, you can hit me up. It is tototpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the socials at tototpodcast. If you want to make a one-time donation, personal Venmo for me, your favorite host, (laughs) you can just hit up Venmo at Christopher Swinney. That is C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R. S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. The easiest way to support is to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. And check out our socials. Follow us on the socials. So, uh, I'd like to give a shout out, as I always do, to our art director, Sarah, over at Road Dog Supply. Make sure to follow her on Instagram and Facebook, at Road Dog Supply. Uh, She's worked really hard on the new fire sale stuff. We still have some limited bundles available the uh, the seven inch got delayed again at the pressing plant. Hopefully, it's going to ship very very soon, and uh, you can still get a bundle over at firesaleisaband.com. And for everyone that has ordered, your bundles will be shipped out as soon as we get the records. They're just sitting there at Road Dog Supply with your address and everything ready to go. But we can't ship them out till we get the records in our hands. So if you're still interested and you want to get that, you want to check out what I've been up to other than the podcast. Firesaleisaband.com. So that is it for the intro, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no segment today. I'm going to jump right into why you came. This is my conversation with the director and producer of the new documentary on the Blasting Room, Aaron Pendergrass. Pendergast. Pendergrass, I think is a name as well, but his name is Aaron Pendergast. And this is our conversation. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Mr. Aaron Pendergast. Did I say that correctly? Yes. <laughs> and you are the producer and director of the highly anticipated new documentary about the Blasting Room. I, I just, I'm so excited to have you on the program today. As soon as I started seeing the posts for the Kickstarter and everything, I just, it, it's, 
it's my heart, man, because I, I love Bill and those guys. So many friends have recorded there. So many bands that have been on this podcast have kind of made a career of recording at the Blasting Room. So first and foremost, I'm excited to have you on the program. And how's your day going, man? <laughs> uh, it, it's going good. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a busy time of year. So that's been interesting. But uh, we're, um, you know, getting things done, getting ready for the holidays coming up. So um, yeah, just been, it's been a, a good day. Well, I, w- I want to talk a little bit first before we kind of do some of the history of wh- how this whole thing got going. You know, I saw that the Kickstarter was fully funded about a month ago, right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. Almost. Uh, yeah. Just about a month ago. And I, I saw there's so many cool, like, you know, things that people get for, for, you know, pledging to the Kickstarter was that an original thing? There's so much crowdfunding now. When you guys had the idea for the documentary, was it always going to be crowdfunded? Uh, it was actually. That was for me a big part of. Um, I shouldn't say why I wanted to do the movie, but part of the why I thought we could pull off the movie was that um, you know this crowdfunding doesn't always work for films, right? But when you're doing something that's kind of um, already got a built-in fan base, like The Blasting Room, where you've got these bands that have recorded there and people who like those bands and everything, it really helps you build that kind of network you need to pull off a campaign like this. So I think it was just kind of the perfect project um, for funding through those methods, right? So I take it, you know, someone that's going to make a documentary on The Blasting Room, you are probably a punk rock fan, right? Yeah, definitely. I grew up listening to a lot of the, the punk rock uh, bands that recorded at the Blasting Room and um, always loved that genre of music. So it was, for me as a filmmaker, kind of the perfect topic to tackle, right? Now, I'll tell you, man, it's really exciting for me because I know that, uh, you know, you worked with the guys that did Filmage, the, the Descendants documentary as well, or was that your company? No, so that um, Kevin Kirchner, my uh, fellow producer on this film and one of our cinematographers, uh, he worked on um, Filmage. So he's got the connection with those guys and was part of that project. Um, and then how we got connected is he's kind of been there, uh, the studio's, you know, videographer essentially for the last 20 some years. Um, so he's got, you know, tons of footage from over the years with all the different bands that have come through there. So for this movie to happen, obviously, like Kevin would have definitely needed to be involved. Yeah. Um, and so it was just a matter of us kind of connecting and, and putting those pieces together. I just, for a guy like me, I'm, I just turned 43 a little while ago and it's just so cool because my whole, you know, upbringing in music and this whole punk rock thing, as I get older, I never thought there'd be a descendants documentary. I never thought there'd be a blasting room documentary. There's a documentary on fat wreck. I mean, there's, as you know, it's almost like this special time in my life where all of these things that spoke to me are now being, you know, highlighted and given the credit that they deserve. Is that kind of what drove you to to do a documentary on the blasting room? Yeah, and I think you you really captured it there with what you said because for me it was about that like um, I keep you always see in like you know um, pop culture and movies documentaries anything that's kind of mainstream like they focus on these artists that have you know sold billions of records and have you know millions of fans and like they it's almost like that's all that matters and for me there were all of these other bands that i thought were so important and touched so many lives and even though they're not you know these these international superstar mega acts um they're still important they're still relevant to the scene and and to music and to a lot of people's lives and so uh, for me it was yeah kind of like what you said it's about like highlighting these kind of less you know mainstream 
kind of artists and places and telling those stories because I think they're they're fascinating and and you know those guys fought so much harder and worked so much harder for what they have than a lot of people that get a lot more credit for you know being important to to music or to culture or whatever so well and I think I mean I don't want to take away anything from the big time documentaries on you know Billy Eilish or whatever but it's like when you've got somebody like Bill and those guys in the descendants where they were in all they signed a major label deal they got that big advance they instead of just going crazy with the money they built something I, I think at the heart of any documentary you as a filmmaker maker probably agrees with me there has to be a story and a good story and I think yeah. that's what all of these things from that I love being a 43 year old man that grew up in punk rock, you know, there's such good stories in the fat wreck thing, in the descendants, in the blasting room. So what, what's the process like for, you know, it's a documentary, but there's still a narrative. So you still have to tell a story, right? Right. Exactly. And I think like with documentary, it's hard, right? Cause you've got an idea of how you think your story is going to go, but it doesn't necessarily play out that way. Like there were definitely some storylines we, plan to chase that are just they weren't coming together right so we're like all right this this isn't going to work we got to rethink how we approach this um but to me i'm like i think every uh you know if there's what seven billion people on the planet there's seven billion stories worth telling right like everybody has a unique story that has you know can be told and um so for me it was like we know there the story's there right it's just like kind of you have to feel it out and try to find it. Um, for me, we kind of put together like an outline usually for what we think is going to be kind of our main story points. And then as we chase those, you know, I try to keep interviews conversational and play off of what people say. So we can kind of, maybe there was, you know, a narrative element we didn't think about that in the process of interviewing people comes to light. And then we can kind of chase that um, narrative and ask more people about it and kind of build from there. So I think it's just kind of a, throughout the process of making the film, you kind of evolve and change what you thought would happen as, you know, the content presents itself. So you were talking about, you know, uh, one of the guys that, that was with you on this documentary that was the, the videographer for the studio. He had a lot of the kind of archival footage and whatnot from everything that's happened there. So, I'm, I'm, you know, you had some stuff to start with. As far as the interviews, I mean, you've got interviews with Alkaline Trio, the Ataris, which is my old band. Uh, I never got to record the blast room. I'm still dying to, but uh, hot water music, propaganda, good riddance, lag wagon, of course, rise against uh, no effects. So many different bands. And when that stuff kind of happens, you said you like to keep it conversational, but do you go into each interview with these different members that, you know, different stories and stuff with actual like questions written down, or is it just, Hey, tell me your experience of the blasting room. How does that go? Um, it's a little bit of both. I always have questions ready because, you know, everyone you interview is different, right? You have some people that you ask a, a question, like a, you know, a leading question that doesn't have a one word response and you still somehow manage to get a one or two word response from people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you have other people like when we, um, the one that really surprised me, we sat down with Derek from Alkaline Trio and like the camera was rolling and I hadn't even asked a question. Really, we were just kind of talking like the pre-interview stuff and he just went off for it's probably like five, six minutes straight, just talking about the studio without even being prompted. And it was great afterward. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry. We hadn't even like started yet. And I was like, no, we're, we've been recording, but and don't <laughs> apologize. Cause that was great. You know? So you, it's kind of a mix, right? Sometimes you can just roll, roll with it and I won't even have to look at the questions I have. And other times it's like, uh, I need to keep checking them. Or if we know, like, especially now that we're later kind of we're, we're wrapping up our last 
few interviews before we just move straight uh, into like focusing entirely on post-production, um, looking at, okay, what or where do we have gaps in the narrative that we really need to fill and make sure we get those responses out of the people we have left to talk to. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, I, I always go in prepared just in case, but it's nice when you can just kind of have that conversation and not really have to go back to those notes. I, I kind of, when you're telling me about this, it reminds me quite a lot of podcasting, honestly, mm -hmm. because like, you know, I've got this little timeline of, of things I want to talk to you about with this documentary, but there's also tangents and, and sometimes you just start talking and, and, you know, some of my, I, I want to go back again to something you said earlier about how, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. So there's 7 billion stories. This podcast mostly has musicians, punk rock, metal, hardcore, stuff like that. But some of my best episodes that I feel were like really storytelling episodes are people that maybe are comedians or, or maybe have nothing to do with music. And I just really like how, you know, there, there is such a parallel between kind of the filmmaking thing. I'm not saying I know anything about how you do it, but talking to people and trying to get stuff out of people. I mean, I would think it would be very, very similar. Like, like what I, you had, uh, some of the guys from good riddance. Did you talk to Russ? Um, we've not sat down with him yet. So we're going to be, we've, we've had a couple, um, times we were supposed to and things didn't pan out but they're yeah. going to be here in january so we're going to be interviewing him next month when they're in town well i tell you when when i had russ on 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 the show uh i i've i've kind of know russ we've met a couple times over the years on tour and whatnot but i had a lot of people that host other podcasts say oh man he, he's a tough interview and the first like 10 minutes it was some one answer questions i mean he's very you know nice and humble and there's no like he's not being a prick or anything but it's just kind of hard to draw stuff out when i started talking about hockey he lit up <laughs> and he just started talking. So do you find that sometimes like if you have a person you're supposed to interview for whatever you're working with, that if you can find some kind of, you know, thing that you guys share in common or something that, you know, they're really into that might open them up more to talk about other stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think having the, um, yeah, having, finding that, that thing they're into that you can speak uh, to as well definitely helps. Um, I think that's something like why I took on this project. Uh, the last couple of features I'd worked on was, uh, with another filmmaker named Justin Kaler and he was kind of a ranch kid, grew up in South Dakota. And so we were doing these kind of, um, you know, figures of the American West type films. And when we talked to those people, I mean, they'd open up right away cause they'd ask him about, well, what, you know, what made you want to do this? And he's like, well, I grew up on, on a ranch and my dad had, and he'd start, you know, rattling off all the the ranch term stuff about, you know, how they refer to how many head of cattle they have or whatever else, you know? And I mean, they, they would just immediately connect on that level. And then everything else from there would just come very smoothly because they kind of already built a rapport with one another. And I think that's kind of the key, right? Is yeah. like building up a rapport with the people you're interviewing so that you can get that stuff out. Right. And sometimes it's just hard. I've had people that I just can't figure it out. You know, I don't know what we need <laughs> to talk about to open them up, but some of them just don't always go well. So one question that I had, because, uh, you know, drilling the parallel again, you know, I've been in music my whole life. I've been, you know, lucky enough to be in some bands that put out some good records and toured and whatnot. <clears throat> but when I started this podcast, I had like this wish list of people, like a bucket list of people I wanted on the show. And I've almost had all of them on the show, you know, fat Mike and Chris from propaganda and like all these people that, you know, they belong on this show, but when I talk to them, I'm still the 15 year old kid that has 
their record. You know what I mean? Like when you were talking to some of these guys being a punk rock fan, enough of a punk rock fan to do a documentary on a studio. How was it talking to some of these guys? Did you have some fanboy moments? Cause I have them all the time. <laughs> I it's, it's one of those things. Um, I definitely, you know, just have to keep it in check. Cause I, I do try to, um, teach me your way. You know, Cause I don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's tough. Right. Cause you want to like, I want a fanboy out, but I also know like, I want them to know we're taking this seriously and yeah. this is a real thing. And so uh, my kind of my, I guess, strategy to go in is, um, you know, just treat them like we're on the same level. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like that's how you deal with celebrities too. Right. Is like, if you have somebody who's famous, they don't, everybody treats them like, Oh, there's this famous guy. So if you can go in and just be like, Hey, we're just two people having a conversation and not make it weird. It, it definitely helps one, just make them feel more comfortable. And two, um, after the interview's done, then you can kind of, <laughs> you know, fanboy out a little bit. Like, yeah. Hey, really love your music. You know, um, like that's what I did with, um, we were done with Alkaline Trio, uh, interviews. I went up to Dan cause we had him last and I was just like, Hey man, really looking forward to the, the bygones record and really loved all your emergency room stuff. Just, you know, wanted you to know I'm a huge fan, but didn't want the, the interview to be weird. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so it's, it's tough though. Right. Cause like these guys, you're, I, like you said, you know, I grew up listening to them, love yeah. their music, never thought I'd be sitting across, you know, the room from them asking them questions about, you know, where they recorded all that stuff. So it's, it's kind of surreal, you know, <laughs> but it's also one of those, I'm like, I don't want to screw this up. I'd like to keep doing music docs if I can. Yeah. So I, you know, <laughs> please keep doing them. Like I said, I, I love the yeah. fact that now I go on the streaming sites and there's like everything I listened to when I was growing up in high school, you know? it's kind of crazy. Like I was hoping, you know, I knew about like the fat records doc and then there was the, um, pick it up the Scott documentary. That's great. That documentary is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, I'll do blasting room. And then I look and it's like, man, there's like the, the anti-flag doc. And then, the, you know, it's like, everybody's doing like, there's so many of them coming out and it's, I'm certainly not upset about it. It's awesome. Cause that means there's, you know, there's a market for it. So there's going to be some interest and we might have some success with the movie, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just crazy to see how many are getting made and it's kind of cool. I mean, that the the ability is out there for people like us to make movies on, you know, hardly any budget and with, yeah. you know, not a lot of resources that other groups would have. So. So when you had the idea to do this, you just said, you know, you saw all these other ones coming out and you're like, Oh, I'll do the blasting room. What was the process like for maybe gaining entrance? I mean, I know the guy that you're working with is actually at the blasting room, the videographer, but like talking to bill, talking to Jason, and ironing out everything and having them be like, cool, I'll sign off on a documentary. Because when I had Sean that did the Fat Records documentary on, they just kind of guerrilla style started making it. And then mm -hmm. Fat Mike and Aaron heard that they were doing it and then wanted to check it out and then signed. And they wanted to make sure that someone was going to handle their story correctly. Was there a lot of that? Were there some meetings with Bill and with Jason and everybody? Yeah, definitely. So I like when I approached the project, um, one of the main things I wanted to do with it was I said, okay, if we're going to do this, like I'm not even going to start until we've talked to Bill and Jason and we've kind of like essentially partnered with the studio on the project. Right. Um, because really it was a, a matter of um, making sure someone else didn't like show up and talk to Bill and them and they say, Oh yeah, we're going to make a movie. And now I can't because they yeah. already, they're started working with somebody else. Um, so I, I, essentially I went in and I didn't do, it was, it's, this is such a weird process for me because normally I would do a ton of research and kind of plan everything out. And this time I said, I'm going to just keep it like minimal 
until I can um, talk to those guys because I want them to be involved with like, how do we tell this and who do we interview and all of that. Um, so I kind of put some stuff together, contacted the studio, Bill and Jason were kind of like, maybe we'll let you know, but it was pretty clear they weren't that interested in, in doing it, you know, um, but they didn't say no. So I wasn't going to just give up entirely, but I didn't want to be, you know, like an annoyance. I didn't want to bug them a bunch. So I ended up um, meeting John Snodgrass at a show in Denver um, for, we were there shooting for Red City Radio and um, told him, Hey, we're, I'm working on this blasting room thing. I don't know if it's going to happen, but if it does, we want to interview you for it. I really high up on the list just as a you know, local band made a ton of music there. And um, he's the one who kind of put me in touch with Kevin and was like, Hey, let me get your info. Like I talk to these guys all the time. This needs to happen. I didn't get to be in filmage. I missed my chance to do that. So I got to be in this one. You know, he was like all about the project. Um, so then it was, yeah, uh, Kevin and I started talking and then we met with like Jonathan and Jason and a few other people at the studio to kind of just go through what we were thinking and what we wanted to do. And then um, Kevin, because he's good friends with Bill. I mean, they go out for beers and lunch and whatever all the time. So he was just kind of kept kind of planting the seed with him. And then um, essentially just called me up one day and was like, yeah, Bill's on board. Obviously, like we talked to the other studio guys, we're ready to do this. Um, and it was really funny. The first time I met Bill in person was at uh, Odell Brewing uh, when they were making the beer for the 25th anniversary show. And like, we we're all done, like wrapping up, leaving for the day. And Bill stops and goes, wait, aren't you the guy that emailed me about doing this like a while ago? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, he finally connected the dots about it, but so it was pretty funny, but uh, yeah, so it took a, it was a process. I think we probably, from when I first contacted the studio to the first time we shot anything, which was that brewing process for the 25th anniversary show beer, it had been like a year. Wow. I don't think people realize like how long these things take, you know, like with that, uh, I remember talking to Sean that did the fat rec doc and some of the interviews were from punk rock bowling, like two or three years before the movie actually came out. Cause I mean, as you know, I don't know how you guys did it. We'll talk about it here in a minute, <clears throat> but if you can get a lot of your interview subjects in one place and you can knock them out really, really quickly, it normally saves you some money and saves you some hassle. So like when you guys did that, what was that process like? Did you try to catch people at events or were you having people come in like, or did you do zoom stuff? How did that go? So for us, like, you know, initially we were, um, we got really lucky because when we started shooting the 25th anniversary show was happening. So a lot of bands were in town for the show. So we're like, okay, we can catch a few bands here that wouldn't normally be here. So that's when we got like Milo and um, a few other people, but it ended up just being kind of complicated with everything else going on that weekend to do a whole lot of shooting then. Um, but then like rise against was in the studio in um, December and then the following like January, February working on nowhere generation. So we were able to just get them at the studio um, since they were there making a record anyway. And then, um, yeah, for, and, and then COVID happened like a few <laughs> months later. So, um, it became very difficult, right. To shoot. Like there's a lot of local people, thankfully around, um, like I said, you know, John Snodgrass and obviously all the studio staff are here. So that made it a lot easier. Um, there's a, you know, a number of good Colorado bands. Uh, we've tried to catch musicians on tour, but that's not always a great idea. Yeah. I honestly, I would say don't do it if you cannot do it. <laughs> um, um, depending on the level of the band, right? Like um, some bands, if they have, you know, like a tour manager and, and they're kind of like a bigger band, like Alkaline Trio, for example, was like trying to get them 
we caught them on tour, but it was hard to do yeah. it, right? And I'm sure their tour manager hates me now, but <laughs> we managed to, to get it done, you know? Um, but then with some of the smaller bands, like they may be like flying in like that day coming from the airport to the venue and then leaving like the next morning or something, right? So there's not really a lot of time to do it. So it just like, you really gotta be careful when you try to catch bands in town, but we have done that a few times. Um, and then we did a couple of trips, kind of what you were saying, like we flew out to California because we had like seven or eight people we could interview in a, within a pretty close radius of each other. So just kind of did that. And uh, the audio karate guys actually drove up from Southern California to, to interview with us in Northern California. That's so cool. I mean, we had a, you know, it was, it was kind of cool. Like people kind of came together and helped us out a little bit since that was all stuff we were paying for out of pocket initially to just get the thing going. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, you know, music festivals, we tried to do a couple of those, but then with COVID, a lot of those didn't happen or bands were like not wanting to, you know, do an interview type setup because you don't want people wearing masks in those. You don't want to date it that way to show that it's, you know, was shot during COVID. Um, so, I mean, it's, this one's been very complicated, I guess, is the the very long-winded answer to your question. But Well, well I'll say I um, used to go, you know, before COVID, I kind of did 50-50. I would go to, I, I live in Indianapolis. We get a lot of good shows. I'll, I'm down to drive. So like I would go to the concerts and if they were friends or, or just through publicists, I'd go do the, the things in person. You know, I'd have two mics set up and the whole deal. But I also did a lot of Zoom stuff. So then when COVID hit, everything went Zoom. When you got, you guys started this process, like you said, you were in the studio with Rise Against when they were doing the new record. And then when COVID hit, did that derail a lot of stuff you guys had planned did you have to do workarounds like how did the pandemic affect the making of the doc it really um i mean to it did definitely derailed it um sorry give me just one second yeah my cat pushed the door open and my wife is doing dishes and it's, i don't want to get a bunch of noise <laughs> okay sorry about that um so yeah after covid hits um you know we had I had a really aggressive production schedule because like you were saying earlier, like these movies usually take a long time to make. And I was like, the last feature we did took like four years. And I was like, I don't want to spend four years making another movie. I just want to get this thing done. So our initial plan was uh, with, you know, it was great that Rise was in the studio. Uh, we were going to get, you know, a bunch of like maybe a dozen or 15 interviews shot and then crowdfund the thing, right? So we just have the money and we could just kind of run, shoot the thing, get it done, you know. Um, and have maybe like a two-year timeline instead yeah. of a four-year one. So yeah, when the pandemic hit, it was like everything went on hold. We're like, we're not crowdfunding right now because nobody's spending money. People are losing their jobs. Like we didn't, I think we had maybe nine interviews shot. So we had a decent amount, but it still wasn't quite what we wanted to do. Um, and then it was just kind of trickling in. Like, you know, we shot uh, with Bill and Jason that summer at the studio because they were shut down. Nothing was happening in the studio so we could go in no one had been in there for weeks you know we could set up the cameras we were shooting these like nice big wide frames anyway so we weren't that close to the people we were interviewing we'd still wear masks so we did it as safe as we could and at least kind of moved it forward but it really i mean just like probably put us behind like nine ten months for what we were hoping to do initially and then it's kind of continued to drag out right as like things like sort of reopen and then didn't and then people were getting vaccinated and then we got variants and so it's just been kind of a it's been an interesting process and in a way it's kind of nice because it's given us more time to kind of think and plan and do things the right way so i feel like our kickstarter was probably more successful because we had more time to think about exactly how to execute it you know we've done some research and planning ahead of time but 
you know, more times always better. So, um, but yeah, it definitely had a, a major impact on, on the process. Um, so where are you guys at in the process? Are you guys have, I'm sure the interviews are done unless maybe there's some other people you want to have on there. Are you guys to the editing like timeline? Like what, where are you guys at in the process? Yeah. So for me, um, you know, anytime I'm doing a, a film, I, I sort of start editing. Like as soon as we have an interview in the can, you know, it's just like watching it, putting markers, making notes, kind of getting a sense of what we have. Um, and then I just do that every time we get a new interview done so that we've, we've kind of, you know, building it out as we go. We understand what we've got. We understand what's working, what isn't working so we can, you know, um, better plan for the future interviews, what we're going to focus on. Um, so it's, it's kind of been sort of editing this whole time. Uh, we're trying to wrap. We do have a few more key interviews to shoot that, again, we just haven't been able to because COVID or, you know, travel issues or what have you. Um, but the plan right now is to try to get everything um, production-wise wrapped by mid-March um, and then the final edit done by mid-September of this year. So, um, and that those aren't entirely arbitrary. Mid-March gives us <laughs> six months to do the edit and then the deadline for the edit is for the South by Southwest uh, submission deadline. So we may not get in, but you you know, you got to get a couple of no's before you give up, right? So I mean, gonna... I would think that that would be kind of a perfect place to have the film be, correct? Yeah. And that's, that's kind of why we're shooting for that. Right. There's always, you know, there's other big festivals, right? Sundance is kind of a no point if you don't have a, a major star attached to your film in one way or another. Uh, but South by still kind of feels like it's still got the vibe where this would be a good movie for that fest. So um, we're going to try to hit, hit that if we can. Um, uh, but yeah, with some of the interviews, it was just like things that we, we knew we needed, but we didn't, uh, necessarily need to prioritize it or it was like well it's one person in one place so going down there's going to be like we need it but it's also going to be a you know not as much of a return and when we're we were still trying to promote and crowdfund and do all of that it's like do we spend you know 30 percent more to go to california to shoot eight interviews versus spending 30 percent less to get one interview in one place right so yeah. um, just kind of have to be uh, more um uh, yeah, try to like stretch your dollar further when you don't have as much or you don't know how much you're going to end up with by the end of it. Did you guys actually surpass your goal? I mean, how does, does Kickstarter, Kickstarter lets you do that, right? Like if you get more than what you actually wanted. Yeah. So we, we hit, our goal was 40,000. We hit just shy of 46. Okay. So, um, which was nice just to have like a little bit extra, you know? Um, and then of course too, like that dollar amount was also not arbitrary. <laughs> a lot of, you know, planning and, and it's funny, right? Because it looks like it's 40000 but then when you get into like the, like Kickstarter takes a cut for their operational costs and then there's, you know, taxes and payment processing fees and then the fulfillment costs. So it really ends up being like quite a bit less than yeah. you actually fundraise that you have to use on the film. But the good news for us, again, because we were pretty much done with production, there's only a couple, couple interviews we have to travel for and then everything else we have is local. Um, it's most of that's going to like post-production, music licensing, all that, so... That's one thing I wanted to talk about because I, I keep going back to this. I've had a couple of different guys on. I had uh, the the dude that did uh, the anti-flag doc and I had Sean that did fat records. Like the music licensing thing, it always kind of, you know, some people don't even understand that. But when you're doing a documentary, especially about a place that records music, you have this plethora of songs and records that came out of that studio 
what what is that process like? Is it a lot of paperwork? Do people just offer to use the songs for free without the licensing? Like, I bet it was probably a nightmare. It's yeah, the the licensing thing and a common misconception for people, and I still have filmmakers try to tell me this, and they do not know what they're talking about. You cannot use a fraction of a second of a song in a film if you are monetizing it without licensing it. There is no, like people will say, oh, there's fair use. Or if you use less than six seconds, you're, none of that is true. If you use anything, you have to get permission. Um, To to, uh, answer your question, like some of the like smaller bands or local bands are like, they're just like, no, please put our music in there. We don't care. Like they'll just let us use it. Um, You know, the rise against of the world, obviously that's going to probably carry our biggest dollar amount for licensing Um, descendants as well, probably be a little more expensive, you know, like, I'm sure Bill will try to help us out, but ultimately the, you know, whatever label owns the masters, it's up to them what they want to charge for it. Um, so what I found in my experience, which has been really nice, is a lot of people will let you um, license like a, on a limited term. Uh, so for example, like uh, festivals only, right? So we can't distribute it, we can't sell it, but we can play in festivals. And then if a distributor picks you up, then you just have to renegotiate the rate for yeah. um, having distribution on it, right? So there, there but are you would probably kind of make a little bit more if you got picked up by a distributor. So it would probably be worth that for them and you, like, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of like my my approach. Typically, is like, hey, can we get limited distribution, festival only type rights, and then renegotiate when when if a distribution deal happens, so that we can kind of keep the cost down, right? And then if we get to the end of it and we have some extra money and we can't get a you know, a full on distributor, we can just pay for the rest of the rights to distribute the content. So I mean, then it depends on the band too, right? Like I said, Rise Against is going to be really expensive. Descendants will probably be expensive, but licensing like, um, of course my brain just turned off like Teenage Bottle Rocket or something might yeah. not be as bad because, you know, it's like Fat Records and Fat Mike, they're a lot more chill about stuff. So they'll probably help us out with- They let Sean use everything for free. So tell him that when you talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> Say, hey, <laughs> I heard something about you. <laughs> Right. Well, that's the benefit for them, right? It's like, it's about that label. So it's a yeah. lot easier to get, yeah. you know, though I'm sure they'd be a lot more open to it. Whereas with us, it's like, it's a <laughs> bunch of different labels and different people. And, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to even get them to write you back. Cause a lot of times they don't take you seriously. If you're like, Oh yeah, we're this little indie, indie movie, uh, thing. They're like, eh, this is, this isn't going to happen or this isn't real. So that's kind of the other benefit to that Kickstarter, right? Is it legitimizes us a little bit more because it's been talked about and it's been seen and we've raised like, you know, substantial amount of money. So it's, it, it's got a little more um, exposure to where people might take it a little more seriously. On the Kickstarter stuff that I was reading, I mean, I see that there's going to be Blu-rays, there's going to be physical, different, different kinds of physical copies and whatnot. With that kind of thing, you know, are you hoping that the things that you actually press, like I'm, I'm kind of a novice to this. I'm in a band. I know you press records, you press CDs, but, but you always have like a, a number you're shooting for. Right. So like you would, how many of the Blu-rays will be pressed? I mean, are you guys hoping that some get picked up by, by distributors? Like how does that work with a movie? So for it, that it gets weird with crowdfunding, right? Because we're, we have an obligation to um, deliver what we promised on the campaign right so and i'm not exaggerating when i say like the federal trade commission will get involved if you don't deliver on what you said you would now typically the the stories you hear about that are like there was a uh was i think it was a board game that somebody tried to crowdfund and they raised like over a million dollars like it was a big dollar one and they just couldn't like they didn't actually 
understand the cost of things. And so they couldn't complete the game and people were obviously very upset about that. And they, the guy ended up having, I think having to like pay everybody back, but obviously had spent most of the money trying to actually make the game. So, I mean, he's just kind of, I guess, screwed forever now. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit, you know, less scary having only like, you know, 40 grand to deal with, but still more than I can realistically pay back without fulfilling it. So given that, um, what I would try to do is make, you know, obviously um, creating anything, there's always like a bulk discount, right? If we, if we need exactly 372 copies of the Blu-ray, if we do 400, it'll be cheaper, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but ideally we'll run enough for fulfillment and leave it at that because then if, a distri- if we get picked up by a distributor, they'll take care of like continuing to make those things. Uh, one thing we are doing is the Kickstarter Blu-ray will have some extra features that we won't include on a future release just to kind of give people a little something extra for helping us out and supporting us early on. There's also going to be, uh, you guys are doing some vinyl, correct? That's correct. Yeah. We're doing a, a new compilation curated by the Blasting Room staff. Um, we cannot sell that at all. So it's, <laughs> this is like the only time it'll be available. So unfortunately, if you didn't back us, you probably don't, won't get a chance to get a copy, but um, they, they may run it again. Like if there's enough demand, like the studio might work with the, the bands and labels to like officially license it. Basically they said, you know, if we, we're using it as a promotional item uh, that does not have a set dollar amount attached to it and we're not selling it. Um, so we didn't actually have to license any of the music for that comp. They, they were uh, cool enough to just let us use everything um, cool. for the purposes of this. So really awesome. But that's also why we can't make it available as it's just like cost prohibitive for us to do that. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. I'm actually really excited. Well, let's talk oh, a little yeah. bit about the future then. Like, uh, you were given kind of a timeline for when you're going to have most of the stuff done. Do you have a projected timeline for when the physical copies will get to the backers? Do you have a projected timeline for maybe an iTunes release before maybe something would happen with a streaming platform, which I'd like to talk about the streamers as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, for us. So we, on the campaign, we said set a uh, November deadline for fulfillment. So that's kind of the other reason we're shooting for that September completion is if we can uh, get it out to some festivals and get some, Hey, we're, you know, you're accepted. We're going to screen the film. Uh, then we can define like, yes, we'll, we'll be able to send out Blu-rays by this date because we know uh, like, so for example, with South by if your movie is available at all to anyone in the general public, you cannot screen it South by Southwest. So if we did get into that, we'd probably have to delay the Blu-ray fulfillment. The other issue right now is vinyl record lead times are insane. Oh dude, Um, I know. So we, the the band I'm in right now, we released our single, uh, we had our first thing's a seven inch and it was supposed to come out in September and now it's looking like January 14th and we've already done all the pre-sale and everything. And people are like, when am I getting my record? And it's crazy, man. Yeah. So that I'm, I'm more worried about like, we might end up being delayed on fulfillment because of the vinyl records taking too long to make. Yeah. And you don't want to do so, two shipments to people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause that'll, that'll kill our shipping budget. So it's kind of one of those, like, we'll, we'll hold off to if like the records take a while. So I still, I would like to hit that November um, original fulfillment date if we can, but I'm, I'm fully aware that things might happen outside of our control that make it unable to hit, to hit um, just, I mean, cause other supply chain issues, right. Who knows? Like we could order the enamel pins and those could be, you know, off by nine months because of material shortages too. Right. So it's, um, 
it's an interesting time we live in, but um, yeah, we're going to do our best to get them out near the end of the year um, if we can, or end of next year, obviously. Um, and then delay if, you know, if we get into something like South by Southwest, it's probably worth having people wait a few months to get them. So as far as like, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime, I, I have friends that have made some movies and I know on Amazon Prime, you can kind of put anything up there you want. There's like a way to do it, get an account, do whatever they have to look over it. But I know that that's an option, which I would think you guys would probably take that option as a last resort. But are you hoping that maybe one of the bigger guys might take a shot at it? Yeah, that's that's the hope. Um, you know, like you look at, you know, Netflix, obviously, they don't look at anything unless it's brought to them by one of their partner distributors. Um, so you you either have to have a connection with somebody or... Um, you know, you get like I had a, a friend of mine was in a movie that premiered at South by Southwest. Um, they played like opening night and I think they won the editing and storytelling award at the festival. And before the festival was over, Netflix, a buyer from Netflix at the festival approached them and and offered an exclusive Netflix wow. deal to the that filmmaker. So um that's kind of the the dream, right? Is like you yeah. play a big festival buyer, somebody notices it. And approaches you there because that's where you're going to get the best deal, right? Because it's clear like they want it, so you're you're in that good position to ask for more, right? Whereas if you go to them, it can be a little tricky. Um, the good news is uh, you've mentioned a few of the guys, but like uh, Taylor from Pick It Up and Sean from Fat Rec, like I've been in touch with those guys and we've talked on a number of times about this stuff. So now that they've had some distribution, they've got some contacts too. So um, you know, Sean's offered to help us connect with people if we're having trouble finding an outlet for distribution. Um, because yeah, the, you know, put it on Amazon, but who knows what kind yeah. of deal you're going to get. You know, obviously you probably won't get anything up front and it'll just be based on number of streams or number of purchases or whatever. So, yeah, I told, I told Sean, Sean and I have gotten to be close since he was on the show and, uh, he was kind of telling me like, yeah, you need reviews on there and, and we get paid every time it plays. It's kind of like streaming music. So there'd be nights where I'd go to bed and I would just turn fat rec doc on and just go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> like you're maybe only getting, you know, like a penny or whatever, but I'll, I'll go ahead and help my friends out, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, it, it's, um, it's interesting, right? Like this digital landscape we find ourselves in has really changed the way you distribute content. And it's kind of nice, right? Because people like myself and Sean and those guys, like we can make a movie and realistically get it on a platform, get it in front of people and make some money off of it. Yeah. Um, but it's just the, you know, navigating that's tricky. And I think part of why they do that is, because it's so easy to make a movie, there's probably a lot of, there's probably a lot more bad movies out there than good ones. So, you know, having a filter to make sure like you're getting the best content because, you know, they're competing with other streaming platforms. So they want to have good content. Right. Um, and that's not, to, I'm not shitting on any filmmakers. I know nobody sets out to make a bad movie, but uh, there's a lot of people who are, you know, out there that maybe don't know what they're doing and are, are biting off more than they can chew for their first project. I certainly did that, you know, um, but as you, you know, grow and get better as a filmmaker, you'll, you'll start making better content. So. Well, you were just talking about your first project. Let's talk about future projects. So, you know, we have the timeline for when this is going to come out. There's going to be a way for people to see it in the future, whether it's on Amazon or, or iTunes or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. So I know that you said, you know, you're, the, one of the things you worked on took four years. You're hoping this one doesn't take that long do you already have in your mind your next thing you want to do or are you already working on multiple things right now? I, I always have like at least a half dozen movie ideas bouncing around in my head. 
um, I think it's kind of a, uh, the curse of being a filmmaker, right? Is your, uh, for me personally, like I'm on a project and then kind of what you said, I'm like, I'm always kind of thinking about, okay, what's next, you know? And it's hard. Like you have to really remember, like you're working on something now, like finish that first. Don't put too much thought into this, this next thing. Um, especially because there's always that kind of after the movie's done, there's the, you know, going to festivals and talking to distributors and trying to get, get it out in the world. Like that's takes a ton of time too. Right. Uh, so doing that with another project is, is tricky. Um, that being said, yeah, there, I've got a couple ideas in my head. It's depending on what we will make will depend on if blasting room makes money. So, cause some of them take more money than others to make movie wise. Um, I think I'm going to, um, maybe go back to making a couple of short docs for the next couple of years before I try to tackle another feature project, just cause these are, it's a lot of work and, um, I love doing it, but I'm also like, I love seeing the finished product and having to wait so long to see that is kind of hard to, to do, you know? So if I can sit down and knock out a, a short film in nine months or 12 months, then I'd rather do that than, uh, you know, spend four years on another project, but I'm sure it'll, in a couple of years, I'll be back to like, I need to make another feature film. Well, I tell you what, I put up a, <clears throat> a thing in our socials today. I always get some, some listener questions. I got it up kind of late. I, I got a couple questions, but I actually got a good question I want to ask you. This is Jose. He's from Mexico City. And uh, via Instagram, he wanted to know basically a two-part question. He wanted to know what band or artist or musician is your bucket list documentary that you would like to make if you had access to anyone living or dead? <laughs> and uh, his second part of his question is, what type of fictional like feature film would you like to direct and be involved with if you could do any genre or work with any type of actor on some fictional type movie? So you can tackle either one first if you want. Thanks. Yeah, those are great questions. I So for the first one, um, music-wise, uh, that's easy. Brian Fallon. Oh. He's my number one musician. You, could, you yeah, could get that if this Blast Room thing blows up, man. Brian Fallon's right. a good dude. <laughs> He's a great yeah, dude. That's, that's my hope. I was like, if this goes off, maybe I can, maybe I can do the, the Brian Fallon documentary. Um, but yeah, I just, I love his music and, um, you know, just huge fan of Gaslight Anthem and then all the solo stuff he's done since that. I just, yeah, I think he's a great songwriter and really talented guy. And I'd love to be able to work with him on something uh, just cause that's kind of like my fanboy moment of like you were saying, I'm like, I don't know if I could <laughs> hold it in, but <laughs> he was supposed to be on this podcast sometime last year during the pandemic and we had to reschedule a couple of times and then it just kind of went by the wayside. But he was on my friend Dewey's uh, podcast, Pure Pleasure Podcast. He, he just seems like a really good dude. I met him one time at like catering somewhere, but I, w I won't say that we know each other. So I don't know if I can right. help you or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like, honestly, my worry is he seems like such a humble dude that he'd probably be like, nobody wants to see a movie about me. Like, why, why He would probably would you know? say that, but man, I would love to see a movie about him and his bands and everything. Yeah, definitely. I think it, I think there's, there's something there for sure. Yeah. Um, movie wise, um, you know, it's funny. I, I don't know that I would direct it. So like the, what got me into, um, making movies at all was editing actually. And what I always wanted to do was like edit an action movie. That'd be so cool, I feel yeah. like if I, yeah. So I feel like if I did anything, I'd probably want to work on like an action movie of any kind, uh, doing directing or editing. I don't know that I would know how to direct an action movie, but I just love editing like fast paced high energy stuff so 
that would be I think. Well, I've I've the last sure. question that I'll kind of ask you is is a is a question that I want to ask after what you just said. <clears throat> I have a lot of friends who uh you know love making movies. They make little movies, big movies, whatever. And then I've got friends that, you know, have nothing to do with that industry at all. And I always have this question of, you know, if you're a musician, you can be sort of an elitist. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I have that on vinyl, like stuff like that. So with you saying you wanted to like maybe edit a big action movie, what are your feelings on some of the big kind of overbloated budget, like $100 million movies out there that some people would think are just, you know, eye candy and it, it's, there's no substance. Like, are you kind of an elitist when it comes to movies? I mean, and don't, please don't take this the wrong way. Oh no, no, definitely not. I am. I am not. Uh, I love myself a good, big dumb action movie just as much as I love you know uh, and you know Oscar sweeps you know uh, like parasite type movie um you know all those uh, I think there is there is an art to the craft in uh, every genre you know and like was it Scorsese that was that was throwing shade at the Marvel movies I want to say I'm sure he um, did yeah <laughs> yeah it's you know even those it's like you know there's yeah there it's a little bit over the top it's a little bit much but there's still a craft that is involved in it. Um, it's hard to, you know, when you see like 90% of the movie shot on green screen, it's kind of hard <laughs> to appreciate the like, actual filmmaking technique because so much of it is just animation. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there's space for all of that. I, I think really the the downside, right. The unfortunate piece is that there is a, a lack of appreci appreciation, you know, like audiences show up for the big Marvel films of the year and they don't show up for some of the like really good, you know, uh, more artsy films that, that have a lot to offer uh, that maybe just, they don't have as much interest or, you know, people are like, well, I don't need to see that on a big movie screen. I can watch it on my TV at home, you know? Um, so yeah, there's, but yeah, I'm certainly not an elitist at all. I, I love, I love all kinds of movies. Um, well, then we're going to end on this note. One of my favorite movies of all time and people give me shit all the time. And I want to know your opinion. And then we're, we're going to, we're going to go off into the sunset after this. One of my <laughs> favorite movies. And every time it's on some syndicated channel, I have to watch it. I own a copy on DVD and I don't even have a DVD player anymore is the, uh, amazing captain Ron with Kurt Russell and Martin short. Have you seen Captain Ron and what are your thoughts on Captain Ron? Oh my gosh. So I've, I've seen it, but it was a very, very long time ago, uh, probably in syndication on television. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know, but honestly, uh, I mean, great. Like, that's awesome. I, you know, there, there are so many, um, I think everybody kind of has like a guilty pleasure movie, right? That's my like, guilty pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's not a great movie, but I just you know you just love it for whatever reason. So yeah, I mean, power to you, whatever. You know, well, no, I mean, and I want to with with movies. I kind of look at it as music because you know how, you know, are you how old are you? Uh, I am thirty six. Thirty six. So we're in the ballpark. I'm a little older than you, but I have these times where I'll hear something that maybe isn't that great, but I was in love with it when I was young. So I have this nostalgia. I watch Captain Ron now and I know it's not a good movie, but I love it so much. You know what I mean? So what is a movie maybe that you grew up watching that you know is not great, but you still have that fondness for? That'll be the last question. Then I'll let you get out of here. Oh man, that is a really good one. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to dig deep here. Hang on. <laughs> um, 
it's a toughie, right? Right. Well, I just, you know, it's, it's one of those two, like you ask and then my mind goes blank and I'm like, I can't think of any movie I've ever seen. Well, with, with the new <laughs> Ghostbusters afterlife, I took my son to see that. And my first movie was the original Ghostbusters. My dad took me when I was five. And then I mm-hmm. took my son who's five to see the new Ghostbusters. And I wasn't let down. I loved it. A lot of my friends think it's kind of cheesy and whatever, but I thought it was wonderful. And it's made me lately kind of yearn to watch a bunch of the movies from my childhood. And as I've gone through and watched them, there are the ones like Goonies and whatnot that still hold up and they're great movies. But there's a lot of movies I'm like, man, why did I love this? This is a horrible fucking movie. (laughs) Yeah, gosh. And of course, yeah, that's all I could think of are like the Goonies and stuff that are like, no, that holds up. No, that holds up. God, this should not be this hard. I need to like, I wish I could open my DVD thing out there and see what's in there and be like, oh yeah, that movie, that's a, that's a movie that's not good, but I love it for some reason. Can you, re- oh, well, let's go to a different question to end it. I'll, I'll let you think about that for part two when you come back when the whole thing's out and we're going to talk about how, good, yeah. how amazing the documentary is doing. Um, <laughs> are there any movies that you can recite almost verbatim, like Back to the Future, one, two, and three, if you and I sat down and you knew the the script we could go through and do it and i wouldn't even need to look at anything it's just like it lives it lives rent free in my brain right are you there movies Actually, like ask, that you asking that question just made me think of of my guilty pleasure movie okay cool yeah um, it's it's probably empire records dude guilty pleasure that movie is amazing it's rex manning <laughs> See, I'm like is that, does people think it's amazing i don't know yeah I, I love that movie that's a movie i could definitely if we had it on i'd probably be like shooting off the lines with everything. So um, see that your answer fits for both questions that works. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, love that one. And then that, and probably um, the original uh, live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, that's a great film. Wasn't uh, Corey Feldman like Donatello or something, or he was in, wasn't, did he did the voice? I don't think he was in the costume, but yeah, I think he did the voice for him. Yeah. (laughs) What do you, what do you feel about secret of the ooze with vanilla ice, man? Oh God. <laughs> it's so funny. Like as a kid, I never appreciated the first one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then as I got older and rewatched it, I was like, Oh, holy shit. That's a great movie. It's and dark. It's dark downhill. in places too. Right. Like yeah. there's actually some real movie making in that one story wise, as opposed to just stupid turtles fighting each other. You know I mean? Yeah. And I think that's why they like shifted away from that. Right. Is they were probably like, Oh, this was supposed to be for kids and it's definitely not. So yeah. let's, you know, make it, like more colorful and silly and you know, it just kind of went very downhill after that. But yeah, the first movie, I, man, I love that movie now going back. It's like last question. It just came to my head and I'm really going to let you leave after this. I swear when I, when I say Batman, what actor pops in your mind first? Well, just now Michael Keaton. I don't know why, but because I'm sending you my Michael Keaton vibes. That's (laughs) why through the zoom call, I'm sending it to you. Right. (laughs) I just always wonder because I've got, you know, I, I'm not a huge comics guy, but I love Batman and Michael Keaton's mm-hmm. my Batman and everybody's like, oh, Christian Bale. I'm like, yeah, but have you seen the the one with Michael Keaton? Come on. It's great. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I think like the, I love the Christian Bale ones, but I do think they get a little more credit than they're due sometimes. I just get it's sick like of the voice. Good. It's like, I am Batman. Like, dude, Batman doesn't always sound crazy like that. Come on. Right. Well, <laughs> and too, like, I, I think there's... um. I don't know. There's, there's aspects of it that I feel like are a little too, like they tried to bring it down to a more kind of gritty grungy level, but then still have, um, 
things in it that may like like the technology i don't like like the the batmobile thing being yeah. a big tank and then like the whole like microphone array thing at the climax of the second one i just it seemed like like too much right it was it was like they took this like what's supposed to be kind of like this um you know world's greatest detective as he was called originally in the comics with like gadgets and things and just turned it into like this like tech billionaire with like all this like way over the top technology that maybe that's how the comics go again i'm not a big comic fan but it just seemed like too much for some reason so well, now you've opened up a can of worms that I have to ask you one last thing, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. And I know this is crazy. Um, no, no, no worries. So recently, I kind of dismissed it when it came out, but recently I watched Joker. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't really know a lot beforehand, but it was like a real movie. There wasn't all this like crazy superhero stuff, and, it, and the story was so dark. What are your thoughts on maybe more movies of that ilk, like taking those stories from the comics or whatever you want to say, the the superhero stuff that is kind of dark when you think about it. And it's not cheesy and kitty and all the colors and everything. Do you like the, the whole idea of taking that superhero narrative and kind of flipping it around? I do. And you know, it's tough, right? Because I think that that's kind of like the, the, you know, I don't know. It seems, um, trying to think of how to put this like you know it's almost like you you run that risk of being like too artsy and too you know whatever but i do like the idea of of bringing it down a notch because they've turned into such major like spectacles like you know bringing something down to a more you know ground level simpler kind of narrative maybe not narrative but you know simpler um um presentation of the content you know um, cause yeah, there's just something about the, you know, everything in Marvel now is this like, like, um, life threatening, you know, um, like all threatening all life on the planet kind of level threat as opposed to, you know, this, like, I want to blow up this city. Like, you know, it's like a little bit more of a, I don't know, a contained kind of, uh, narrative. And yeah. And again, I mean, with Joker, obviously it's a completely different, like we're looking at like a potential origin of this, you know, popular character. And some people, I know a lot of people who hated that movie. I know a lot of people who loved it, people who are lukewarm on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, something like that, I, I think would be really cool to see. And it's actually, I'm really excited for the Batman, uh, with, um, Robert Pattinson. Uh, Robert, yeah. Cause it, it seems like more of that, you know, down to earth crime fighting type, yeah. you know, uh, movie as opposed to these big um, over-the-top things. So many of my friends were like bummed because like, oh, the guy from Twilight. I'm like, have you seen his other movies? Like the dude's a killer actor and like he can tell, I've seen the pictures now. He can pull off Batman. That's I'm I'm stoked, man. I'm excited. Yeah, he's he's one of those like, it's surprising, right? Because those Twilight movies were so bad and uh, <laughs> you just didn't expect much from this guy. But to your point, it's like I've seen him in a few things and he's He's a very good actor. He just got put in a bad movie. <laughs> he made so a lot happens. of money on those bad movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, dude, I've had an absolute blast talking to you today. I, I could not be more excited for this documentary. As soon as it is available to me, I am grabbing this thing. And everybody out there listening, uh, I know they're going to be stoked to see it. Where can they get more information? You guys have socials, a website. Where can they go? Uh, we have uh, an Instagram um, that's just blasting room film and then a website as well. That's blastingroomfilm.com. Um, we are, uh, I'm trying to make more of an effort to post more regularly in both of those places. We kind of fell off a little bit, 
uh, good doing during the campaign and then post campaign, just getting everything organized with backer kit and that I've kind of dropped off on keeping those things up to date. But uh, now that we have um, a budget, clear timeline, all the content coming in, it's going to be a lot easier to just keep people, uh, keep updates going and keep people regularly posted uh, on what's going on. So uh, yeah, blastroomfilm.com and blastroomfilm on Instagram. Well, man, I'm, I'm excited. And I think that, uh, my listener base is, is your target demographic for this. Awesome. So everybody needs to, uh, you know, keep checking it out to see when everything's going to drop the blasting room film. It is about the blasting room in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you don't know what that is, you're listening to the wrong podcast. So Aaron, today's been awesome. Please keep in touch. And, uh, when it comes out and you guys take over the world, uh, come back on and, uh, We'll talk about your Brian Fallon doc you're going to do, okay? Oh, yeah. No, I love it. Thanks for having me. Um, and we'll definitely be back once uh, once everything's out in the world. So Awesome, man. Well, thank you once again, and have a happy holiday season, and I will talk to you very soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Peace. So there it was, my conversation with Mr. Aaron Pendergast. I said it right this time. Director of the upcoming, director and producer of the upcoming Blasting Room documentary, Make sure to check out BlastingRoomFilm.com for updates so you can stay abreast on when everything is going to drop. It's going to be amazing, and you're not going to want to miss it. I cannot wait for this to come out. i just so excited to see this documentary. So like I said, check out BlastingRoomFilm.com for updates, and uh, they're on all the socials. Just search for Blasting Room Film. And that is it for this week. I appreciate you spending so much time with me every week. Follow me, follow me on the socials if you want. I wasn't going to say that, but now I will. Uh, at Swiss FTW. You can see, you know, pictures of my kids and my cat and, and my guitars and my wife. <laughs> That's about all I post about. But uh, follow us on the socials at TOTOT Podcast. You can also check out my band and follow us on the socials, Fire Sale. It's at Fire Sale is a band and make sure to check out firesaleisaband.com for limited pre-sale bundles of our new seven inch. Uh, you can also get our new seven inch at sbam-rocks.us in the United States. Or if you're in Europe, you can get it at shop.sbam.rocks. If you need to get in touch with me, it is easy. You can hit me up on any of the socials or TOTOT podcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our awesome website, TOTOT podcast.com. There's a website, there's a web page for every episode with all of the show notes, everything I talk about, all of the sponsors. So check it out and please support them and uh, grab some merch while you're there. It is the best way to support the show. You can be a walking billboard for your favorite podcast. So I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite songs recorded at the Blasting Room, Supporting Cast by Propagandi. Um, any excuse I have to play Propagandi, I'm going to take it. They're one of my favorite bands. Recording at one of my favorite recording studios, you can't get better than that. So I'm going to play Supporting Cast from the Supporting Cast album by Propagandi. The title track, if you will, of Supporting Cast. <laughs> um, that's it. I hope you guys dig it. I really do. I, if you're new to this song, you should check out the rest of Propagandi's catalog, as well as all of the other bands, like the 4,000-some releases that have come out of the Blasting Room. It's crazy. You got to check it out. It's worth it. And that'll be your homework until the documentary comes out. 
check out all of the releases they've done, Bill and Jason have done at the Blasting Room, and you'll really, really enjoy it. And I'm hoping very soon to have Bill or Jason or both on the podcast to discuss recording and, and whatever else. I've had uh, Stefan and Milo from The Descendants. So I'm, I'm going around. I'm trying to get all of them to, to be on. And I had Scott from All. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to get everybody that was involved in Descendants or All that's still alive to be on the broadcast. That's my plan. So let's see if I can get that going. But uh, I might see you next week or the week after. Life has been kind of hectic. And uh, there are new episodes coming, so stay tuned. But, you know, like I said, life is hectic and it's harder and harder <laughs> to get these episodes out. I'm never going to stop, but uh, the weekly thing was kind of killing me. And I, I realized that when I took my little hiatus, when I, you know, I had some family stuff come up and uh, weekly is cool. And I know you guys out there would like to have it weekly, but I don't know. I just think, you know, I used to bust my ass to book up. 18 interviews and, and people that I didn't even really, yeah, they're cool. I kind of like their record, but like, I just, you know, I've never done somebody that I didn't want to do, but you know, it's, it's kind of coming down to the fact that I've been around now for almost four years and I'm going to do the episodes that I want to do. I'm probably not gonna, you know, turn down Metallica or something like that, but I don't know. I, I I get a lot of people wanting to come on this show and I'm not really fans of what they do. No offense to them, but I, I've, I've gotten to the realization that, uh, never going to stop doing this, but weekly might be pushing it. Uh, so right now I might see you next week or it might be the week after, but I do have some wonderful, wonderful guests in the coming months. So Thank you so much for staying on the ride with me, for staying on the TOTOT train. I appreciate that. But I will be back very, very soon with new episodes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I had a blast, and I can't wait for the Blasting Room documentary to come out. But I love you guys and gals. Remember to wash your hands, wear your masks, and get vaccinated if you can. Get boosted if you can. Be kind to one another. As always. This is Chris. I'll see you very soon in podcast land. That's where I live at the corner of podcast street. I have a cul-de-sac, the podcast cul-de-sac, and I live there. So stop by anytime. Just take your shoes off at the door. Peace.
Lars Fredrickson from Rancid. This is Mark O'Connell from Taking Back Sunday. This is Tom from MXPX. Hey, this is Jay Bentley from Bad Religion. This is Vinny from Less Than Jake. This is Travis from Coheed and Cambria. This is Chris number two for the band Anti-Flag. Hey, this is Ricky Rocket from Poison. This is Pete Parada from The Offspring. Hey, this is Zach Blair from Rise Against. Hey, this is Eddie from the band Thrice. Hi, this is Frank Turner. Hey, this is Jim from Pennywise. Hey, this is Eric Smelly, the drummer of No Effects. Hi, this is Bill from Faith and More. Hey, this is Chris from Propagandy. Hi, this is Roy from No Use for Name. Hi, this is Ben Gillies from Silverchair. This is Stefan from Descendants, and you're listening to That One Time On Tour with Chris Swinney. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform.